0: Well, if you've got a Bible, you'll want to turn to Isaiah chapter 53. It's also printed for, your, for you in your bulletin uh, this morning. And many of you will know that we've been spending the weeks leading up to Christmas looking at different passages from the book of Isaiah. Specifically, we've been looking at passages that are commonly referred to in Isaiah as servant songs. And there are four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And these are passages where Isaiah specifically speaks of a servant of the Lord. And this servant is a bit mysterious. Isaiah never gives this servant a name. He simply paints a picture of what this servant is going to look like and what this servant is going to do when he arrives. He gives us some parameters by which to recognize this servant when he arrives to rescue God's people. A friend of mine named Matt once told a story about his time as a student representative at the graduate school he attended. One weekend, his school flew him out to Colorado from North Carolina in order to address a group of potential students. And in the days leading up to the trip, he was in communication with a lady named Barbara who was going to pick him up from the airport. And my friend had never met Barbara in person. He had never seen her. Uh, And so he boarded the plane. He landed and he decided, well, I'm just going to head to the baggage claim. And so he head to the baggage claim, wondering how he was going to identify Barbara. Well, he gets to the baggage claim and he sees a woman at baggage claim holding up a sign with the name Matt scribbled on it. And he thinks to himself, great. She made a sign so they could find each other. And he heads over to the lady and he goes to shake her hand and says, I'm Matt. And she pulls him in for a hug. And my friend tells the story that the hug began to get awkwardly long. And the lady began to stroke his cheek, remarking on how much he'd changed over the years. And it didn't take long for both of them to realize that he was not the mat that she was looking for. He pulled away and he was left there to wait for the person. She was left there to wait for the person she was expecting. He goes on to say that it got more awkward as they stood next to each other for a while so he could get his bags from the baggage claim. And it's a funny story that highlights how important it is to know what you're looking for. It's important to know because it lets you know what to expect and how to relate. Isaiah was writing these descriptions of the servant so that God's people might know what to expect. So they might recognize the servant when he arrived. Isaiah is providing a template through which to identify the servant so we don't miss him. As we look at the final servant song this morning, we see something unexpected. If given the opportunity to draw the portrait of the servant, this is not how you and I would have done it. In fact, as we'll see at the very beginning of our passage, this portrait of the servant astonishes people. They're astonished because the servant is described by Isaiah in such a way that not anyone would have expected. This fourth servant song is the most elaborate and poignant of them all, and it's really the focal point of Isaiah's vision. And more than any other, this servant's song is cluing us in on what to look for when the servant arrives. So with that in mind, you follow along as I read, beginning in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been pulled them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before it shears, is silent. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is God's word and gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, we believe that you speak to us through your word And so we pray this morning that you would speak truth to our hearts and that your truth would set us free. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder how many of you had to read Shakespeare's play Macbeth in high school. Shakespeare's shortest tragedy about political power and the extent to which someone will go to attain that power. Macbeth is the main character who's really consumed with ambition and he's spurred on by his wife, Lady Macbeth. And through the course of this short play, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth conspire to do whatever they have to do to become the king of Scotland. Macbeth first kills King Duncan, who is the current king of Scotland, so that he can ascend the throne himself, and this leads to more and more murder in order to protect themselves and their power. Well, the guilt and the internal torment begins to gnaw at Lady Macbeth, and it becomes uncontrollable And she begins doing strange things while she walks in her sleep. In an act five of the play, a doctor and a maid oversee Lady Macbeth while she's sleepwalking. And they oversee her vigorously rubbing her hands as she's sleepwalking. And she cries out, out spot, out I say. Here's the smell of blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. And Macbeth, who eventually sees his wife coming unhinged, asks the doctor in the play, he asks this, canst thou not minister to a mind diseased, pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow, raise out the written troubles of the brain and with some sweet oblivious antidote cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs upon her heart? Basically asking, can't you give her something? And the doctor replies, "Therein the patient must minister to himself." It's a portion of Shakespeare's play that rings so true to the human condition. We intuitively know that there's a spot in each one of our souls. We've done things we wish we could undo. We've said things we wish we could unsay. We we we've thought things that we would not want anyone else to know about, and we live with these regrets. These gnawing voices in our mind and our heart that tell us we should have done better. We could have done better. And it's a spot that everyone in the world carries. The Bible calls the spot that we all experience guilt and shame. And like Lady Macbeth, we walk around trying to wash out this spot ourselves all the time. Begging for the spot of guilt and shame to be removed from our souls. And we attempt to wash the spot out ourselves all the time with different things. Things like money or beauty or entertainment or overwork. Things like romance and achievement. We think if we just had a bit more, if we just did a bit more, we could gain relief from the guilt that we feel and maybe the spot would be washed clean. But no matter what we attain or how hard we try, No matter how how high we rise on the ladder, we're always left with the spot. We should know by now that we could never scrub hard enough. We could never work hard enough. We could never attain enough. We could never control enough to wash the spot from our hearts. We've stained hands and we need someone else, someone outside of ourselves, to wash it out for us. In other words, you and I need a gift. In a few days, kiddos, you guys are going to be opening gifts. Some of you will be opening lots of gifts. And for you guys, it's going to be a magical few days where hopefully you experience how deeply you're loved and cared for because of what these gifts represent. Well, it's also a season where we get to celebrate God giving us a gift. And it's the gift that everyone desperately needs. A gift that meets our deepest needs. A gift that satisfies all of our longings. It's a gift that washes out the spot in each one of our hearts. A gift that cleanses us from guilt and shame. A gift that God gives us lovingly. And what we see from our passage this morning is that God gives us the gift of the servant. And it's the servant that has the ability to wash the spot that we have on our souls. Now, I must say, I realize that it's a little bit strange to be looking at a passage on the crucifixion two days before Christmas. You might be thinking, thanks a lot, preacher. Not really what I expected when I walked through the doors this morning. But as we consider this passage, it's encouraging to remember the fragility of God. We worship one who took on flesh and came as a fragile human, so that we might be healed and experience peace with God so that we might be washed clean. It's a completely unexpected and undeserved gift that God gives us, and it's what we celebrate this Christmas season. And as we consider this passage, my hope is that you leave this room today feeling like you understood the flow of this passage better. And so we're going to look at it from the beginning of chapter 53 and work our way through. In chapter 53, it doesn't come out in your bulletin as much, but if you've got a Bible open in front of you, it does we see four different stanzas of three verses each. And they highlight the appearance, the work, the death, and the victory of the servant. Okay? That's the gift that God wants to give us this Christmas. First, let's spend a few minutes looking at the servant's appearance. In our culture, if you needed help, if you're looking for someone to go to bat for you, We normally gravitate towards a certain type of person. If we need a favor or if we need advice, whether it be professionally or personally, we tend to look to the powerful or to the wealthy or to the beautiful or the well-connected to be on our side and to help us along. And this pull toward the beautiful and successful is really, it's the water in which we swim. It's so prevalent in our culture of perfectly curated social media posts, and impressive connections, and how many connections you have on LinkedIn. It's kind of the water in which we swim, the air in which we breathe. And that's why it's so surprising for us to see the way Isaiah describes the servant who's going to come and rescue the world in verses 1 through 3. We see the servant had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, and men hid their faces from him. No one would have expected someone like this servant to rescue anyone. It's not how we would have drawn it up. We see from our passage that the servant grew up to an adult life characterized by rejection and sorrow. He was quiet. He was unassuming. Humanly speaking, he had no special qualifications or connections or experiences. And the more he grew, the less impressive he became. He appeared ordinary, Isaiah says, even unattractive. And though through the course of his ministry, especially as he neared the end, he met strong opposition and suffering and became even less desirable to know. Remember Peter, his closest friend and disciple, on the night of his crucifixion denied even knowing the servant. It wasn't worth being associated with someone so undesirable for Peter. Who would have ever thought that this was who God would send to rescue the world? This servant who was plainly human, who grew naturally, who had a traceable ancestry, looked so unimpressive. Who would have thought that when God came to the earth, he would be despised and rejected? People looked at him and saw something very ordinary. The world would consider him unfortunate. He had no societal or professional or personal cachet. If we'd have lived during his earthly ministry without God opening our eyes, every one of us would have despised and rejected him and turned away. It would have taken deep faith to see the glory of God in Jesus of Nazareth, just like it does today. What we see in Isaiah is the servant who comes to take away the sin of the world, but no one pays attention to him. He's very quiet, doesn't attract attention because he's not powerful or wealthy or well-connected or beautiful. And one thing this passage isn't inviting us to this morning is a different way of seeing, just by way of application. A different set of values when it comes to who we esteem and honor. For who we want to become ourselves. Because the more we want to be around beauty and power... The more we want to cultivate wealth and superficial image in our lives, the more prone we are to miss what God values, to miss the way that God is at work in our lives and in this world. What if instead of power, we valued quiet service? What if instead of outward beauty, we valued internal character? What if instead of accumulation of wealth and materialism, we valued those who were rich in love and tried to outgive one another? If that happened, we may be more ready to recognize God's work in our midst. The servant was despised and rejected by those he came to save. And that leads us to our next point, as we see the servant's work on our behalf. We see in verse 4 why this servant was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. It's not because of anything he had done. It's because of what we had done. We see in verse 4, he came to bear our sorrows and carry our grief. This servant came to walk in the midst of the mess that we had made. He was full of sorrow and grief because he lived in the midst of our reality. And he was honest about how broken things actually were. And we rightfully esteemed him stricken and smitten by God. This servant was afflicted, but it wasn't because of anything he had done. We see in verse 5 that he was pierced, he was crushed, he was chastised, he was wounded for us. We were the ones who deserved what's being described in verses 4, 5, and 6. And what we see is that the servant came to take our place. He came to take the suffering and the death that we deserved. These verses cannot be understood without the concept of substitution. And the idea of substitution was not new to the Israelites who would have been reading this in 700 BC. It was enshrined in their sacrificial system where animals were slaughtered as substitutes so that they might have relationship with God. And here we see the servant coming as the perfect lamb of God, the servant who is coming to finally and fully make perfect substitution for God's people. Jesus was our substitute. He received the punishment we deserved and we're the beneficiaries receiving the peace and the healing that he purchased for us. These sufferings should have been ours, but were deliberately taken by him. It's total redemption, total forgiveness, total acceptance, total peace, total healing. The servant has come to pay a debt that we owed so that we might be set free. Some of you will know that I'm a big Dave Ramsey fan. I know some of you like him, some of you don't. But I love his books, and I regularly listen to his radio show. He's pretty entertaining Um, And it's also interesting to hear stories from across the country of what folks are dealing with financially as they call into a show. And a few years ago, Dave Ramsey would carve out every Friday of his show for what he called debt-free screams. And it's a day set aside for people to call in after they had spent long time Uh, Working really hard to pay off their debt, whether it be credit cards or student loans or car notes. Some people even paid off mortgages and would call in and scream. Folks would call in and they'd share their stories of sacrifice and hard work. And at the end, they got the chance to count down and they would scream as loud as they could I'm debt free. And Dave Ramsey would play this beautiful Braveheart music in the background and bring a tear to your eye and goosebumps on your uh, arm. And it was emotional. It's even motivating as you hear the sacrifice that these callers go through in order to become financially debt-free. And we intuitively know what this means in our financial lives, to be debt-free. But I wonder this morning if you've ever considered that we all carry a spiritual debt. The Bible tells us that we've racked up an unimaginable amount of debt before God through our reckless living and through our poor decisions. And even if we're not cognitively aware of this spiritual debt, we sense it. Everybody senses it. And we work hard to pay this debt back. Whether you're a Christian or not this morning, we all work hard to pay this debt back thinking that we can serve enough or give enough or be devoted enough or connected to God enough to pay down some of the debt that we owe. But the hole we're in is way too deep. And we, we can only make, it, we only make it deeper with continued bad decisions and reckless living. And so what you and I desperately need is somebody outside of ourselves to come and pull us out, to pay our debt and to set us free. And that's what the servant comes to do. Because of the servant's work, we can scream, I'm debt free. The servant takes what you deserve, judgment and death, and he gives you what he deserves, life and acceptance. Peace with God. Healing that broken relationship. It was all secured by the servant's death. He was pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. The comfort we get, the good news of our forgiveness comes at tremendous cost to him, not us. And that cost is what we turn to next. We see it in verses 7 through 9, that our peace and healing cost the servant his life. The death of Jesus was a miscarriage of human justice. But it was something that the Lord orchestrated. We see in Isaiah and through the Gospels that Jesus came and he willingly laid down his life. He was not overpowered. He chose not to fight back. Even when Pilate tried to make it easier on him, remember at the end of the Gospels, by giving him a way out, if he just explain himself. Pilate didn't want to kill Jesus. But Jesus did not open his mouth in defense. And it's worth noting that in this last servant song of Isaiah, unlike the other three we've read, the servant never once utters a word. He never once speaks himself in this song. Just as in his trial and death, he's as silent as a lamb. And it's hard for us to imagine someone being wrongly accused and not putting up a defense. You know, when we see someone do this, there's an internal reaction that we have that makes us want to scream, stick up for yourself. Come on, it's not fair that you should take the fall for a crime you didn't commit. But that's what we see the servant do. The servant went to his death with a calm silence, not because he didn't realize what was happening like an oblivious sacrificial animal. He did it full well knowing what was happening. The servant moves deliberately in the suffering, knowing what's required of him if God's justice is going to be satisfied and God's love displayed. And we see both of those things beautifully displayed on the cross at the same time. God's justice being satisfied and God's love being demonstrated right there meeting together on the cross of Christ. So we see that his death was taken on willingly, silently, deliberately by the servant, But lastly, we see that death did not have the final word in the servant's life. Let's spend our last few minutes looking at the servant's victory. As we pick up the final stanza in the servant song, the last three verses, we see that it was the will of the Lord to crush the servant. The architect behind all of this was God himself. The death of Jesus was more than a human plot, it was a divine strategy. And it leaves us with the question, at least if you're thinking this morning, what good father would wish his son to be crushed? What good father would wish his son to be crushed? Who would do this? Well, it only makes sense if there was some unquestionably greater good to be obtained. And what greater good could possibly justify the crushing of the servant? Well, it was worth it in God's mind if he could reclaim his creation and his creatures. What we see in these final verses is the cross was not a defeat. It was a victory. It was there that the servant justified many. It was there that sons and daughters were brought back to God. Even though the servant's soul was in anguish, he was satisfied when he saw what he accomplished by his death. When he saw what he had won. And we see in verse 12 that God will reward the servant for pouring out his soul to death. God will give him victory by raising him from the dead and exalting him to power. Death does not get the final word. In verse 12, we see that the servant comes back from his mission with riches. His weakness is turned to strength. His dishonor is turned to honor. His defeat is turned to victory. The one who was despised and rejected now takes the highest place and he enjoys his reward, which is making many righteous. And the question we'll end with this morning is this. Why did the servant suffer like this? Why did he take what we deserve? Why did he have to die? And we've said this before, but I think we need to say it more often because it's something that we so often get backwards. We need to understand that the servant did not come to earn God's love for us. It's so important because you and I often think that God was angry at us and he didn't want anything to do with us. And Jesus kind of came in order to coax God back. And say, hey, you should start loving them again because of what I'm going to do for them. Come on, give them another chance. I'm here now. But that is not the story of the Bible. Jesus did not come in order to earn God's love for you back. Jesus came because God already loved you. In other words, God does not love us because he sent his son. God sent his son because he loves us. Do you understand the difference? The servant stepped forward because God's love for us was strong and he wanted us back. God never stopped loving us. And if the servant's sacrifice was good enough for God, it's got to be good enough for you too. This means we can stop with our self-salvation strategies We can walk away from the crippling guilt that we often feel. We can look at the things that we've done and said and thought that we're ashamed of and know that they do not define us. Those things do not condemn us. The death and forgiveness that our servant offers has a louder voice in our lives than all of our regret and all of our guilt and all of our shame. God loves us. And he glorifies himself by flooding our lives with mercy and grace in his servant, the one that we celebrate coming this Christmas season. Jesus wants to share everything he won for us. What a gift for Christmas. Will we receive it? Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for coming to this world out of love and order to reconcile us to God so that we might have a relationship with the one who never stopped loving us so that we might have the ability to be received back in as sons and daughters of the king lord we pray this christmas as we celebrate this gift that you would stoke our wonder stoke our praise and our worship help us to really marinate and soak in this great gift that you've given us We pray that we would celebrate it now as we come to your table.